0: The early church did not do that. There was a council called the Council of Jerusalem in which the question that the church had to face in the very, very beginning was, if you come out of Judaism, which is where all the converts came, do you first have to be Jewish and then become Christian? And we talked last week about the two parties, the Pauline party, the the Trine party, the, the, the followers of Peter. Uh, the followers of Peter, and Peter initially said, yeah, you, got, you, you first have to become Jewish, and then you can become Christian. Um, wh- whereas the Pauline people said no, you immediately go into baptism. And you remember how that conflict was, was settled. Uh, Peter had a vision. And in Peter's vision, uh, he, he imagined this great net that was full of all sorts of creatures, uh, which he understood them to be. No, that's that is the understanding of the church. The church is to be, by its nature, very diverse. So Peter uh, recanted, and the Council of Jerusalem uh, accepted Pauline's position that immediately, if you are a convert, uh, you you will run right into uh, into Christianity and become baptized. That's the very first conflict. Now. I also said last week, and I think this is important, none of us, in our personal lives, or none of us politically, none of us ecclesiastically, uh, I don't I don't think any of us ever get up in the morning and say, well, I think we'll change today. Uh, it, it just simply doesn't happen. Change is usually a reaction, almost always a reaction. And what, and what I did last week was outline for you the, the various conditions that, that cause change and I think I outlined what, six of them or something like that I said that there are biblical discoveries that cause the church or have caused the church to change and, and the most dramatic biblical discovery uh, I would suggest to you has occurred in my lifetime back in the 1950s I was, uh, what, uh, I don't know, 10, 12 years old I was completely unaware of this at that time but I did, later, especially when I went to seminary, um, I was subjected to the, to the uh, impact of those discoveries that occurred in the 1950s with the, uh, the German biblical movement, which led to something called source criticism. When I was growing up, and I'm going to guess that most of us here, when we were growing up, we were probably literally trained would that be accurate? It was a six-day creation, the seventh-day God rested. Um, We also learned something, as I talked about last week, the orders of creation. As as God is over the creation, so men are over women, so women are over children, Um, so pastors are over congregations. Um, A kind of a military business model that is based on something called hierarchy. Uh, Think in terms of a ladder that might capture it. Uh, and what the, the German biblical movement, uh, how, how things were reinterpreted, was the German biblical movement uh, led to something called source criticism. So we examined the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, and more particularly the book of Genesis. And we began to understand that what there is in the book of Genesis is a, a whole compilation. Of, of oral traditions that were merged. <laughs> Thus, interestingly enough, as I think I used as an example last week, um, you have two stories uh, about the Exodus, don't you? I mean, you have, interestingly enough, you have the story of the people of um, of Israel leaving Egypt, heading out into the wilderness, being pursued by Pharaoh, who uh, has a change of heart. Um, and, uh, and they get to the Red Sea, and one tradition says, oh, here's, here's what we learned happened. Um, the, Moses with his staff uh, divided the waters, got water on one side, water on the other side. People go through the dry land. Pharaoh with his chariots attempt to follow them, and, uh, and Moses on the other side waves his staff. And dramatically, they all drown because of the water's. So that's one version. I think we left. And, and uh, if you watch Cecil B. DeMille, um, was the Ten Commandments? Um, I mean, that was his choice. That's well, if you're, if you're doing a Hollywood thing, it's more dramatic. The, the other version, of course, has this this wind that comes, blows back the water on one side, so you got water on one side, you got dry land on the other, and. Uh, of course, when Perel's army gets to the middle, the wind dies down, and again, same result. But it's not as dramatic, and you can see why Cecil B. DeMille said, "Oh, okay, we'll go with option A." Mm-hmm. Huh? But but you but you see, there are two there are two stories or two traditions there. So so the, the Vandenbergians over here learned under one way, huh? and, uh, and and and. Maybe your, your community learned it another way, and, and then you merge it, and the redactor, or editor, says, oh, I don't know what we you, we'll put them both here. Mm-hmm. And so you do. And you have two creation stories. So you have multiple stories. Now that's a dramatic change, is it not, uh, from the way most of us learned scripture when we were growing up, with a kind of literal understanding. So, it's, it, it's, it's, not a, uh, it's not a conflict that is yet over, is it? Uh, dramatically, right now, you, you have two enormous camps and they've become very political. So, you have the evolutionists over here, and, and then you have uh, what, the creationists uh, over here, the informed creationists over here, source critics, and, and, and you're still seeing this conflict today. Um, It's constant. Now there's a lot at stake, of course, if you surrender literalism, right? I mean, if you're gonna surrender the issue of, uh, as God is over the creation, men being over women, women being over children, and children over their pets, uh, if if you're gonna surrender that, then the resulting effect may well be chaos. And so there's an enormous amount of energy, usually supported by fear, to keep that whole ladder in, uh, intact. Now, if you if you reject the metaphor of ladder, what what's your other option? Well, interestingly enough, uh, we are products here of the '60s in the sense that that was the ecological movement, huh? and the ecological movement was dramatic, not only biblically but also socially, because it now said what we are interdependent. Huh? We're not—we're not, we're not based on, on some kind of, uh, uh, of order. Of where, if you know, if you hunt, I'll cook. Uh, or you better put that one the other way around, because I can't do that cooking part at all. But, but anyhow, um, you can see that rules were determined um, by that kind of uh, uh, hierarchy, and, and yet it's very, very dangerous, of course, if you. I, you know, if, if one of us, uh, if one of us is dependent upon the other person to do something, and the other person changes, suddenly I'm unemployed. You know, as long as Janice keeps cooking and I keep providing food, uh, that, that'll work and it's fairly stable. But but God forbid that she should ever start providing food and cook. I'm suddenly without a job. And so, the the way we enforce that, of course, is with fear. You know, if you you mess around with this order, it's a domino theory. If you kind of fool around with one part of it, the whole thing goes. So, uh, my my point, getting back to, uh, is that that's one of the things that is a dramatic change that affected not only the church, but it affected almost every aspect of our society. Our, our pastor now is we don't call a pastor to be over a congregation we, we call a pastor to work with us uh, in, in, in harmony in fact in fact one of the things that was dramatic is uh, remember Lutheran Book of Worship the Green Book it, people don't realize what a radical book that was and it was radical in that Um, Next to some of the roles, the roles in worship, uh, there was a little AM, assisting minister. That that did not say the assisting pastor. uh. It it meant that that role was assigned to a lay person so that the lay person and the presiding person, the lay person and the ordaining person, were to work in harmony with each other isn't that interesting? It's very, very interesting. Um, and, and, and Because that's the composition of the church. It is not the church. Not two pastors or one pastor leading us all, huh? Or being over us. But rather instead, a lay person who is representative of all of you and the pastor working together in harmony. That's a wonderful composition, and it escaped so many congregations. And it's very interesting how you can illustrate that. You can illustrate that with a book. If, if two people, one way and one organe, are presiding together, and they hold the book together, where is your focus? It's on the book. Because we're people of the book. And and so if I assist my partner, and my partner assists me, that that's a composition of the church. And and that came about through a biblical discovery that that attempted to destroy this notion of the church is built on this kind of hierarchy, that God is over us all. That's kind of interesting. Okay, we we talked in terms of um, uh, mobilities and migrations and how that changes things. I used an example uh, of the church uh, in Barron, Wisconsin, uh, just up the road a little bit, which was, I don't know what percentage, Norwegian, but it was pretty high. And interestingly enough, uh, when I think it was Jerome Foods moved in and needed to hire workers, who did they hire? They hired a whole bunch of Somalians now the church in Berlin had an option. They could have become Amish and sort of pulled away from it all, or they could have been inclusive and invited. And they chose they chose the latter. So migration changed that congregation. The little congregation I served in. I was an intern. It was I, I think it was probably other than myself and Janice. Uh, well, she's part Norwegian. She doesn't like to admit it. But she <laughs> Um, we uh, we went to this congregation and uh, and it was pretty Norwegian, but now if you go there, it's uh, it's pretty Hispanic <laughs> because in the Marshall to Marshalltown, Iowa, and hired an enormous number of Hispanic people, and that congregation, Elam Lutheran Church, huh, reached out. Uh, first thing they did was they hired a pastor who was bilingual, smart, mm-hmm. very smart, and uh, so that congregation is not inclusive. But it happened because of the migration patterns. Um, I talked a little bit about something called anthropological influences or research. Uh, there was a guy I mentioned last week. His name was Arnold Van Gennep, and he was an anthropologist, and he began to see things that that, that cultures celebrate passage and uh, changes that occur. Uh, for example, uh, coming of age, or marriage, or death, or changing jobs. Those are all what he called passage rites. And, and they are composed of stages or steps. And he talked about, I think last week I put on the board, the first stage is separation. Well, any of us who have lost anybody know that full well. The, per- the person we loved and care for is not here and, and then he said secondly there's usually a stage of what he called chaos or suspension um, I, I used an example maybe I did maybe I did um, the Jewish people describe uh, describe this in between times as the days when feathers are cast to the wind isn't that a beautiful beautiful description for, for any of us who have been um, been through this the, the you know, the, the kind of crazy craziness ne- we, we should never hold somebody accountable should we uh, who liver in that <laughs> in some time uh, so be- because they, they they are not they are not as they should be huh? uh, they are in suspension and, case- and craziness or, or, or chaos and, and then um, and then lastly there's another stage that Brian Gannett talked about called incorporation where, where we come together and, and we are made whole again. Uh, the Jews the Jews have another wonderful saying uh, that any of us who are pastors I think are probably acquainted with. The, the Jews say you can wear black for a year. Isn't that a that you can wear black for a year? And, that, and then you kind of got to get on with it. Isn't that isn't that a wonderful kind of healthy way of kind of looking? It doesn't mean it goes away. It just simply means that. We 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 are, are grieving. Then there's a period of time. Uh, there's a time to be born and a time to die. And, you know, uh, and I think that's a wonderful, maybe healthy way of looking at something. Uh, my wife has a friend that was probably her closest friend, who uh, who didn't marry well, and she 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 went through a, a divorce. Oh, I'm going to guess. maybe mean, 40 years ago, it's like it happened yesterday. I mean, when they when they talk on the phone, it's, it's as real today for her as it is was 40 years ago. Um, she can't she can't deal with that. I mean, there's no there's no grace or gospel that there's no good news in the midst of. It. She still lives in the bad news. She's still living in Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Uh, because because. What Van Genep suggested is this passage motif probably um, is the matrix under which most of us live, because in one sense, I talked about last week, it's the theological matrix, isn't it? I mean, Good Friday, separation. Holy Saturday, chaos. Easter... Wonderful way of looking at it. And Ben Hennep noticed something else. He said, you know, incorporation is always accompanied by food eating, and, eating. and that's true for any of us who have been through this, huh? I mean, someone dies, and there's a period of time in between that and the funeral, and I suggested last week, if he, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and it's a three-day period. It goes on forever. And people are bringing all the casseroles over, but you can't eat them. <laughs> you know, you just can't eat. Um, so you say, in fact, you stash it out somewhere where it's cool, or pass it on to somebody else, or something. <laughs> but, but, but interestingly enough, what, at, the, at the moment of the funeral, what do we do? We all come back to the church and eat ham. Or marry that, what do you, what's that stuff you it uh, has a little <laughs> Peter it? Yes. The cheese bread? No, the tater tot one. The tater yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to dictate the menu for my funeral ahead of time, but I hope they don't have tater tots. <laughs> you I remember mean, that? Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, you know, there's, that's an old joke. You have all heard it about the guy. He's dying, and and his wife says. What would, you like, what would you like to eat for one of your last meals? And he says, well, I'd like some ham, and she said. We're saving that for the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, it's an old joke. <laughs> um, okay, uh, but anyhow, there's a discovery, uh, an anthropological discovery that has a dramatic effect in the, in the life of the church. So that if you open up um, the ELW, the Red Book, Trans-Red Sunday morning you will see baptism and funerals are are now underneath passage. That's that's kind of interesting. Um, Lastly, I guess any ecumenical mergers. um, It's it's not accidental that um, the mergers that we have experienced as the ELCA have had a dramatic effect in one sense on many congregations. a few years ago, we were considering uh, a, a, an agreement with the Episcopalians. And, and many of us uh, who lived in the Midwest, particularly, where there's a ton of Lutherans, we, we did not have proper compassion uh, for congregations that find themselves in uh, an, an extreme minority. For example, in New England, I think we had six Lutheran congregations in all of New England. Uh, Episcopalians are uh, very very strong uh, but what what that meant is through that ecumenical agreement now we are able to share clergy and and, uh, and here in the Midwest we might not need to do that at the moment we might uh, but in New England I mean it certainly was uh, contributed to the life a lot of many congregations the, the idea of now we can the point is that this whole reformation and reform thing is dependent upon a whole lot of factors so that as Lutherans, anytime we see change in the church, there's something within us that ought to prompt us to say, well, you know, what are the factors that caused that? What's, what's behind that change? Well, why are we now doing things a different differently?" Uh, Now, that's not to say that all change is good. It just simply says that all change is caused by some kind of factors that are sometimes outside of ourselves. Okay, with all that aside, and I think maybe we're caught up a bit, I want to get at the early church. And when I talk about the early church, I'm talking about the church that is uh, in this period of time between um, Pentecost and the year 311 A.D. I'll define that as the early church. And last week, remember, we talked about 311 A.D. is a pivotal day in, in the life of the church. Because that was the day what happened, that was the year what happened. Constantine, Constantine was converted. Uh, and, and with the conversion of Constantine, the church... Moved from being an outlawed community outside the protection of the state, voluntary, but outside the protection of the state, to uh, a non-voluntary organization under the protection of the state. Hmm? Constantine's conversion is dramatic, and I said the second, uh, the second critical date. The second critical date in Christian history uh, is 1781. Because in 1781, we have a a revolutionary document called the US Constitution, which changes again the status of Christianity. Christianity now becomes what? Voluntary under the protection of the state. So you have those two factors, voluntarism and protection that change because of these two dates and the occurrences in. So I want to look at the church before 311 A.D., when the church is a, an outlawed community, voluntary but outlawed. Okay. Now, um, much as we like to think of it, and and I think, um, I, I think that it's important to note some some people think would say that Christianity is is really the reformation of Judaism. Have ever heard that? that that what what Christ did was just reformed Judaism huh? and. and, and the reason I have difficulty with that is because if that is true, then Judaism would have, number one, died, and, and number two, Christ's purpose was not to uh, <coughs> to reform Judaism, but to, to make something new, hmm? that, that all things are made new. Now, as soon as I say that, um, there's many dimensions of Christianity that are not very original, hmm? If you think about that, what what Christianity did in the early church was Christianized some aspects of Judaism, and I I I listed uh, I listed on on the page that I gave you some of the uh, the Christianization of some Jewish structures. Uh, Christianity did not invent blessings, but but. What, a new understanding perhaps on what blessing is. I would suggest of, of all the, the concepts that we have within the church even liturgically probably the most misunderstood of any of our concepts has to do with blessing. Uh, interestingly enough there, um, there is only one really good theological book on the nature of blessing. And it's by an author named Klaus Bestermann. And Klaus Bestermann wrote an entire book on blessing. For, for, for many of us, blessing is, is almost the, the equivalent of kind of good luck. You know, you'll you be blessed. I, I hope, um, certain, certain people die that we think should die. And we say, well, that's a blessing. Or you know somebody somebody tolerates somebody for years and years and years and finally finally they die and we say well you know that, that certainly is a blessing. Okay. Uh, or, or somebody goes you know up to one of the casinos and hits it big. We say well they they're, they're blessed. Um, it's almost become a, an equivalent of a, a kind of a pat on the head uh, of, of good luck or something like that. Uh, but. You know, that, that's not... Remember, blessings were worth dying for, scripturally, huh? Uh, to be blessed is to be connected, you know? To, to have an inseparable connection. So that if somebody is blessed, and, and what Heather does is she exercises the, the Church's uh, repertoire of blessings, huh? When someone is blessed, or some couple is blessed, what they are doing, what is happening, is they are inseparably being linked to the creative activity of God. Isn't there? There's, there is no separation between blessing and creation. You, you see where? So, so that if you are blessed, uh, if, you, if you and Sue are blessed, what what happened was you were linked creatively. And inseparably to what God's doing in the world, you're becoming a part of the creative activity of God. Now, the opposite, of course, is to be linked to the destructive activities in the world. Oh, by the way, that's that's what pornography is, isn't it? Pornography is is the opposite of, of creativity. It, it's a distortion. Huh? Uh, so so that when when Heather blesses some one or somebody, she's linking that she's linking that to God's creative activity in the world. And you'll say, oh well, well, what about these? What about blessing of John Deere tractors or blessing of apple orchards or something like that? You know, which churches are or blessing of church pews? Huh? We we have orders for that, by the way. Um, What's that all about? Well, it's not blessing the object; it's blessing the purpose to which the object is used. Uh, So, so John Deere tractors are blessed in that they are used to till the land, so that the land bears fruit, so that the hungry are fed. See that? Or, Connell's Orchards, I think they're still doing this every year, Episcopalians do this still. You know. mm-hmm. They have a blessing on the, the bosom. We don't have the orchard anymore. Oh, okay. We have a blessing the quilts. Oh, okay. But, but the, the, let's get behind that then. The quilts are then, it's not the object of the quilt. The, the quilts ultimately, I think, find their purpose in keeping folks warm. Is that, and that's, that's the creative activity. So, so the churches—we uh, didn't invent blessings. We, we borrowed an understanding the Jews have had for eons. Huh? But, but if there is an area of need for reformation and restoration, it, it probably is in blessings. And, and so we're, we're judicious in our use for blessings. We we have the right to say, to, to what purpose is this going to be used, or, or how do how do these people intend to uh, to live out their creative activity in the world? That that's why confirmation, in fact, there is a blessing. It's called the epikletic, good big word, epikletic blessing, and that means epikletic means calling forth the spirit. That, for example, if we are uh, using affirmation of baptism with some middle school kids uh, they are blessed so that they can fulfill these certain vows huh? certain vows uh, and, and be filled with certain wisdom understanding, counsel, might so that they can exercise, not just begin but continue to exercise God's creative activity in the world through themselves so uh, th- there is an example by the way of this Jewish structures that are, that are, uh, are reformed in the early church uh, we have readings we have prayers you know the order of service that we use the, the, the order of service for the liturgy of the word that's the first part of the service I mean we, we didn't invent that order we borrowed we, we it right out of Judaism Notice the rhythm. Every Sunday, there's a rhythm there. It always begin. It begins with a prayer, and and the prayer, in one sense, states the kind of theme for the day. Is that accurate? So, and, and then we have a reading, and then we have a response, and and that's that's the order that we follow in the liturgy of the word. That's right out of Judaism. It's exactly the way the Jewish synagogue service follows. A prayer, a reading, a response. Well, you say, well, yeah, we have more than one reading. Well, well, that's true, but the rhythm is still the same. So we have, for example, the prayer of the day states the theme. We have the first reading. We used to call that, didn't we, an epistle, or excuse me, an Old Testament reading. Right? But then, but then we got, we got more accurate, huh? Because in the Sundays after Easter, the reading is from where? New Testament. New Testament. New Testament Book of Acts. So we can't call it an Old Testament reading anymore. And, and then we have a response. And by the way, the response is the song. And and the songs are meant to be sung. Um. They're not meant to be read, they're meant to be sung. And there's a couple ways you can sing them. Huh? You can sing them responsibly, you can sing them antiphonally. Can't you picture these Jewish people, a whole bunch of them on one mountain, and then a whole bunch of them on the other singing that and forth to each other? Yeah. So, But then we have something, the, the second reading. Well, we used to call that an epistle. Didn't we? Then we found out, well, wait. Some of the readings aren't from the epistles but for example some of them are from Revelation but but then you say well where's the rhythm again ok the rhythm is we have the second lesson and then we have the hallelujah and, and then we have the gospel another reading and oh we have a sermon in there that supposedly huh, um, makes the uh, opens the gospel up so that anybody can understand it it, uh, we Lutherans are we, we are we are expository preachers. We're not thematic preachers. We're, we're textual expository preachers, which to me is a gift for anybody that's ever struggled with a sermon. David, you don't have to get up in the morning on Monday and say, I wonder what I'll do today or do for the week. It's there. Your task is to expose <coughs> that. Uh, not apply it. Because that looks like this. That looks. The gospel says that reminds me we ought. To. There's a three-part sermon for you. Uh, it's always law, law. Okay. Um, but anyhow, the, t- the task that David finds uh, is to how do I how do I allow how do I set the table on Sunday so that people can can eat off this wonderful smorgasbord of, of scripture. You know, it's an invitation to come and to, and to, to be fed. So the, they have the gospel, and then the gospel is followed by the, the response, the hymn of the day. So if you think about gospel and sermon as sort of a unit, you, you got it. And, and that's right out of Judaism that order, and we do it year after year, time after time. Uh, Christians want people do invent hymns. Jews have been singing for years and years and years and years, huh? Um, the idea of uh, of offering and, and sacrifice. Notice something though, very very particular. Notice where offering comes in the service. Now, I have been told, um, especially during uh, football season, huh? Why can't we have the offering first? <laughs> And then the people that have to count it, to count it, and then they can get out of here in time for the game. And I say, no, it doesn't work that way. There's a a rhythm, there's a rhythm that we've all right out of Judaism, and and, and that is that, and that is that offering, (laughs) offering always, always, follows what God has offered to us. um, the the uh, first God acts then we respond if you want to think about it that way first God acts and then everything after that is our response to that so that properly speaking which we borrow from the Jews huh? we, we announce we announce what God's doing and then we provide an opportunity to respond Thus it is that the uh, the indicative, what God does, always precedes the imperative, what we ought to do. That's, that's what God <coughs> we borrow that. Uh, it gets lost sometimes, may I say. Um, teaching. It wasn't accidental that uh, that Jesus was called what? His most popular name? Uh-huh. Rabbi. Uh-huh. Teacher. Teacher. he was a a teacher of students and and the students were called they were called disciples they they were learners the apostles apostles are sent out ones disciples are, are learners so you got a rabbi and the rabbi assembles a group of learners and and primarily teaches. And, of course, one of the methods of teaching most popular by Jesus, again, is not some New Testament creation, but Jesus used parables, stories. Uh, you, You know, if you've lived around Jewish people, Jewish people can tell stories. I mean, it's wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. I'd say the only people that rival Jewish people for telling stories, maybe Southern Baptists, they can do it too. If you like Southern writers, Southern writers are influenced by their tradition and they can tell stories. Uh, John John Conway, he can tell stories. Uh, Because stories do what? Well, you can't have a story unless you have a conflict. Isn't that interesting? You can't have a story unless you have a conflict. And and what Jesus dealt with always was conflict. The the, the, the conflict, the inability to to accept something, that's a conflict. Um, The inability to understand something, that's a conflict. So the, the parables that Jesus used were were always addressed to a certain conflict among the people. Jesus was a wonderful, wonderful teacher, but he didn't invent he didn't invent the discipline. <laughs> he was taught by rabbis. He hmm? was carefully taught. Now think think back uh, think back about the teachers in your life. The the the, the great teachers um, sometimes I, I say they're they're like people that are always searching for the metaphor that would get through to you. You know? If if this illustration doesn't work, well, well, let me me try this one on you. And and a great teacher, of course, needs to know the students, so I can find the connecting link. Larry, that's what you did, huh? You try to, how do you link up um, well, slot A with tab A. (laughs) You know, how do you put that How do you put that together? You keep searching for the the correct metaphor to to get across because we we learn on various levels. That's why I think that's why Jesus in the 15th chapter of Luke needed three parables. Which was what? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost kid. But somewhere in there, if you you figure it out, somewhere somewhere in there yet. You make the connection. Um, good that he didn't just stop with the woman that cleaned the house. Uh, not, some of us probably wouldn't get that. You know? uh, okay. And this is for you. The, the calendar and organization of time. Um, we, we follow a liturgical year. By the way, I think I've talked about this before. That, that, that is what makes us a liturgical church. It's not that we follow a liturgy a set order of service. I mean, many, many denominations do that. Huh? In one sense, even Quakers do that. Uh, they they have a rhythm to their gathering and their meetings. They don't come together and say, "Well, do will know what we'll do today." No, they they sit in a they sit in around a circle and wait for the Spirit to to give them utterance. So, so it's it's not a liturgy that gives us the title of liturgical church. It's that we follow the the rhythm of a liturgical year, which begins the first Sunday of Advent, and and then concludes with Christ the King. And and in there, isn't it interesting? There's always a time of preparation, then there's an event, and then there's a time of uh, I'll call it significance or manifestation. Huh? We have advent where we prepare, we have the nativity, which is the event, and then we have epiphany, which is the time we spend <coughs> trying to sort of understand what's the significance of this. What 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 does it mean to be Lutheran? Uh, ask that question. That that the word became flesh and dwells among us. Well what, what's that mean? Um And so that's a rhythm, and the Jews, by the way, follow the same kind of a rhythm, and the liturgical year. We have certain meals that are celebrations for us. Uh, The chief meal that we have is what? Eucharist, communion. Uh, What are the other titles? Lord's Supper, Mass. Uh, We sometimes sort of mistakenly call it the Sacrament. Uh, the reason I had a problem with that is because for, for the early church, the last sacrament, number one was baptism and Holy Communion was a part of it. They were not two meals. They were two events. They were one. First you're born, then you. It's not like, you know, you're, you're born in baptism and then sometimes the Lutherans used to say, well, you know, come back after you're 12 and we'll feed you. Um, no. It's, it's, it's one. So that's revolutionary, by the way, in a congregation, and that that's a reformative act in a congregation. So that here, at this congregation, to our credit, uh, we don't say to parents, "Hey, uh, we'll baptize your kid, and then you know, after confirmation, bring them back and feed them." As a part of our baptismal instruction, we also instruct our parents of our Holy Communion. First, your child is born, and then your child is fed. And so that there's never a time when your child does not know both. Well, that's a unitive understanding of, of the sacraments. I didn't learn it that way, by the way. Uh, I learned a kind of interesting thing. I learned something that we we practiced um, we, we practiced the sacramental uh, sacramental understanding of baptism. That baptism, why do we baptize infants or infants? It's the purest proclamation of the gospel, right? There, there's no way some, some child that's, you know, 19 inches long and fragile can figure out that it's of their doing. Right? I mean, it's, we, we, take, we take children when they're most, most fragile, most dependent, and introduce them to grace. Now of course the danger in that is we have been practicing in a sense is infant baptism and then believers communion <coughs> because we stuck a whole bunch of stuff in between. You say, oh first got to be 12 then you've got to have an understanding of what you're doing and th- then you have to go to confirmation for three years in my case, three years. Uh, then you have to stand up in the front for public examination and then finally if you get through all that uh, then we'll feed you. And, you know, by that time, uh, uh, that now we have come to understand, and here's one of those changes that came about theologically and an examination of what the early church did. The early church, when you were baptized, you were reborn. And immediately, immediately, you were fed. Oh, we had a little thing in between there. We had, well, you were baptized outdoors here. In, in living water, right? and, and then, you had the... Oh, you were given a candle, too, by the way, because you received the white of Christ. But it was also functional, because in the, then you had to make your way to where the meal was served. Oh, we did the Easter parade, right? We did. Right? And when, oh, when you were baptized, yeah, you took off all your old clothes and put on your new. Those are your Easter garments. That's your Easter... That's your birthday suit, huh? The birthday suit didn't refer to you being nude, it referred to you being clothed now in the righteousness of God. So, clothed in the righteousness of God, being led by the light of Christ, naive. After you made a little parade, huh? Okay. And, and, and which, there's the drama, isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's, that's the drama. Oh, by the way, when you were baptized, which way did your face? You always face east, huh? Why? Raising sun. That's when the sun came up. <laughs> huh? Because, because you, you face the source of light. Hmm? Oh, that's right, by the way, if architecturally you're trying to describe the inside of a congregation, a church building, the altar is always referred to as the east end of the church. Even though it may be on the south end, right? um, inside the church, you're inside of a church, and you want to describe to the church to somebody. You say, "Well, on the east end," and, and I would say, "Oh, that's where the altar is," because we always face the east. The east is the source of life. Isn't that wonderful stuff? I mean, see, the church, the church didn't have overhead projectors and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It had this wonderful, wonderful symbol system. Behind every one of those there's a story. Sometimes I think that what our projections and all that stuff it sort of limits and takes that away. Because because Heather in one sense is a storyteller. Right? When she walks out in her vestments and, and and you say, Oh my gosh, why is she have that white garment on? Well, she that's her baptismal clothes. She's clothed in the righteousness of God, and how she has a stole, the huh? yoke, and and she can wear a chasuble because it's celebration. I mean, that's powerful stuff, huh? Really powerful stuff, and it tells story. And uh, it's pretty hard to tell a story of something that's on a that video screen. You Just you know, uh, can't do it very well. I can't. Do it. So. So uh, my point is, all this stuff came—it came out of Judaism. It came out of Judaism. I—I guess that certain themes—we're we're not the—we're not the first as as Christians to figure out remembrance. Um, there, there's a whole portion of our liturgy, in the, the liturgy of the meal, that's called anemesis. You should—you know that word. But you know what? You know what has amnesia, huh? Yeah. Um, what what happens to people who have amnesia? Yeah. Marie? Yeah. They can't remember. They can't remember. You know, they're not here. You know. You know. Um, there's a portion of those something like this. The Lord be with you, and you say. And I say, Lift up your hearts and you say And I say, Let us give thanks to the Lord our God and you say it is right to give him him thanks, him. thanks. Right. And there are two things in there. Number one, it's we ought to give thanks. That's Eucharist. That's the word Eucharist. Means to give thanks. But but then comes an interesting thing. Um the pastor says, Hey, you wanna give thanks? Okay, I'll tell you why you gotta give thanks. <laughs> Uh, Because on the night, okay, we're betrayed, that's worth giving thanks. So what sometimes happens is the pastor outlines the reasons to give thanks. Now, some of these these Eucharistic prayers, which is what this is called, uh, for example, there's a liturgy called the Liturgy of St. Basil. It goes on for almost three pages. Of all the reasons you ought to give thanks, you ought to give thanks for the birds that fly and for the snakes that crawl in their bellies, and you know, and, you know, whole recitation of a whole bunch of stuff. We got it kind of simplified, um, but but sometimes the pastor will sort of outline some things we ought to get thankful for, and and, and then you know, in conclusion, because in the night when you was betrayed. And interesting we ought to also give thanks, and that's why it's tied in there, the Lord's Prayer. We give thanks because when the disciples ask Jesus to teach us to pray, this is the prayer he gave them. So this whole notion of, and nemesis or not forgetting what God has done, that, that's the heart of Judaism. In fact, once a year there's a meal in Judaism called the Seder, huh, which really enacts with food the, the whole story of, of Exodus, so you don't so you don't forget. That's what holidays are for. Huh? They're holy days. They're not only celebrations. They're 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 days of remembering key things in our history. Um, and so the Jewish practice of remembering is carried right over into the early church. Uh, the difference between law and gospel. Oh, wow. I'd like to do a whole lecture on that. Um, and Heather and I have already spent a little time this morning. Um, J- Janice and I need to find a church. <laughs> okay? Because we haven't sat in the same pew for so long. Um, it's been a long time. So we have done something. I think you'd refer to as sh- church shopping. Uh, You know, it's amazing um, how many preachers we have heard who don't know the difference between law and gospel. I'm almost blown away when I hear it. The the, the, the law goes something like this. It's what you ought to do. But there's a heavy emphasis on what you should do. That's the law. If there is a heavy emphasis on what God has done for us, that's gospel. And the chief thing that God has done for us, the gospel almost always takes the shape of what? Forgiveness. Uh, is, that, is that the shape the gospel has taken? Yeah. Um, so Sunday's sermon is going to be kind of interesting. I think. I don't know who's preaching here. Um, there's a story of this the this, this short person in the scripture. His name is Mr. Zacchaeus, huh? And Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, so he crawls up a an interesting enough a sycamore tree so he can see Jesus. And and Jesus sees him, kind of blows him away. And Jesus also promises to do what? Eat dinner at his house. He doesn't. Jesus doesn't say, "Hey, what are you serving?" um he said, I'll, I'll, "I'll be with you," um, and, and then after that, after that, after Jesus sees Zacchaeus, uh, who's by the way a tax collector and probably a shyster, huh? uh, then Zacchaeus says, "In response, in response to that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it up to all the people that I have cheated." He. He, Jesus doesn't yell off to Zacchaeus, hey, uh, give away a whole bunch of stuff and then I'll go eat with him. No. Remember it said, God acts and then. No? Uh, Zacchaeus' story is a wonderful story of how we could confuse the and gospel. And I'm guessing if I were to go back to some of the parishes I visited, I'd have a heavy dose of it. Because it makes sense. First, you ought to show me that you're worthy, and then you get, you know, why am I getting this? Because you're good. That's law. Why am I getting this? Because I felt like it. That's gospel. An entirely different way of looking at it, isn't it? Um, One is based on because. The other one is law is always based on so that. I'll, I'll do this so that you will um, Law Gospel uh, by the way uh, when I was growing up I, I was I, I can't remember who taught me but I remember the Old Testament was always the Law and the New Testament was Gospel that's a convenient way of understanding it huh? and, and, and then thanks to the biblical scholars in the 50's we began to understand that the Old Testament was Law and Gospel and so was the New hmm. wonderful Wonderful. So sometimes, if we struggle with our Jews saved, we ought to understand the Jews were the recipients of the gospel. (laughs) That's that's radical. Um, I listed a bunch of other things Uh, Theophanies and Epiphanies, they're kind of close. Um, Theophanies are kind of visions of God when God is made known to us. Is that? and the varieties were, were very interesting, the ways how God was made known. And, and epiphanies are kind of manifestations of, but more than manifestations, significances of. What's the significance that there was a burning bush? Huh? What, what, what does that, the Lutheran question, how powerful isn't it? What does this mean? Huh? It, um, we should applaud every kid in our church that ever asked the question, what's this about, Pastor? What do you mean by that? You know? So, but so many of our kids sit there like sort of, you know, like they've lost their voice. Um, don't you love kids that question? I mean, God, just, there's something about the curiosity. and We gotta, we ought to foster that, not squelch it. You know, sometimes pastors, for children's sermons sometimes are kind of insipid. you know. Well, what does pastor have in the box here? I don't know, hippopotamus, well, I mean, a squirrel, I don't know. Well, that's absurd. Huh? We don't last we, we, Yeah, yeah. Uh, We had to somehow prompt in kids the ability to, to question. And not sort of wrap it up. Keep it open. Isn't that a good sermon when you go home and you're still thinking in your car? Yep. Yeah. you're making, Wow, wow. What's that, what's that mean? Uh, and, you, and you sort of struggle with that? Uh, Love it. Um, but but that's dangerous, because you might not go back next week. But, uh, as I said, blessings and, and uh, curses. Um, I listed here the first crisis in the early church and the central activities of the uh, early church. And the, the central activities of the early church are preaching even in <coughs> um, why, why is this important? Why is it important that we talk about the early church, what the early church was about? Well, as we're going to see in, I think, about six weeks, maybe five weeks, when, when we get to the church moving into the new world, the new world, want, what we, many of its activities were copy from the early church. The, the chief activity in the early church, if you think about this, was really conversion. Was not it? Um, it? It was to somehow make the make disciples. Well, when the when the missionaries, well, when the missionaries go anywhere, one of the things that they are to be about is to make disciples. No, we have some. We have some. We have some stuff that we ought to be extremely embarrassed about when it comes to making disciples. I mean, that's what the Inquisitions were about. Huh. Uh, as my as my old German pastor would say, "They have grace of making you love Jesus. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, have our know. uh, way, we, we are. We are. It's through deeds of love and mercy, is it not?" That the, that the kingdom comes, Jesus and of and mercy. Uh, in, in fact, in the early church, the, the chief witness was not was not preaching as much as it was example. Uh, because it was said, Christians, see how they love one another. We could use a bit of that, couldn't we? That the gospel is so important that sometimes we have to resort to words. Um, but the, the witness of the church I, I, I think the witness of our Savior's Lutheran and Menominee is people seeing that we are what, what dancers call ingrained that our word and our action are one and, and so so it is um, that we, we don't need to always f- fly words but rather instead we demonstrate the, the validity of the gospel there's that thing, remember I talked about a lexerande, lex credendi. That that all that we do is shaped by what we hold to be true. And and extremely important. Uh, the characteristics of the early church I listed for you uh, quickly. It's a first generational church. You can't in the early faith, say, well, my parents used to do it this way. It doesn't work. Uh, it was an oikos membership. The word oikos means house. Um, some, have, some have wondered and I listed, by the way, in the syllabus two documents. I listed something called the Didache, which is the earliest pieces uh, that we have of what the, what the church looked like. and It basically consists of some verses and some snippets. The whole document isn't there. It's the teachings of the disciples and we have just remnants of it. But we do have something called the Rite of Hippolytus, which is the earliest baptismal service intact that we have. Now, one thing that's extremely important when we're considering what the early church looked like, the early church kind of looked maybe a lot like what today's church looks like. Um, What what are the, if you say, well, wonder what the Lutheran church looks like in, in Menominee, Wisconsin? Well, how many examples of the Lutheran Church you got? So if you uh, if, if you found a bulletin from St. Paul's and you found a bulletin from Christ up on the North Side, and you and you found a bulletin from Peace and one from us, you'd wonder what, what, what brings where's the commonality? Huh? So so there's no reason to believe that the early church or church is did it all one way. But most likely there are some common threads. I would hope if you found bulletins from any of those more. There's certain things you'd see uh, that maybe that they do in common. Okay. So Hippolytus was an was a Egyptian congregation and, and they, they, it describes the way new people were welcomed in and adapted. And I listed for you, I think, on a one-sheet uh, the right of Hippolytus, and if you look through there, you're going to find some terms that are still being used today. You're going to find sponsoring and exorcism. You're going to find um, uh, baptism and preaching. And, uh, but notice one thing: that the chief way that the uh, that the church was spread in the first century was through example. Was to example preaching? Yeah, but. But the way that see how they love each other that that was the that was the attractive thing in the first century, and I, I think it's the attractive thing still today. Um, okay, um, the the church was a persecuted church, and, and by the way, the church is persecuted in many aspects of the world today. Most recently, the Kurds most recently occurred. Uh, A short life expectancy for the church. Um, They didn't didn't have many, you know, golden uh, there weren't many senior citizen groups in the Mm -hmm. early church. People just simply didn't live that long. Uh, they, They didn't live that long for a couple reasons. They didn't live that long because of, you know, just the times and germs and medicine and ignorance but they also had some senses of persecution. Uh, The concern concern in the early church is for what I call primary values, survival. If we look at African churches today, what are they concerned with? They're concerned with survival. Hmm? There's not a lot of issues that the church in Africa can afford to spend much time on. We experienced that, by the way, just a few years ago, when the Lutheran Church in the United States and Canada was considering ordaining gay and lesbian people. What was the critique? Well, how are African churches, our sisters and brothers, how are they gonna understand this? And, And my answer to that is they probably won't. They don't have time to. They don't have the luxury of that. Their concern was just simply survival we're not we're not concerned with survival in the sense that we can afford to venture out into areas called inclusivity and those kinds of issues um, it's it just simply one of the luxuries we have with our security Um and, and the fact that we live in a community that has a US constitution most of the African churches do not uh, Adult baptism was the norm uh, in the early church. Uh, Just sort of, I think I'll probably um, end here. Uh, When we talk about the sacrament, people say we're going to have the sacrament Sunday. Number one, we sometimes refer to, we typically refer to, well, we're going to have Holy Communion Sunday. When the early church talked about baptism as the talked about the sacrament, they were referring to baptism. And the norm for the early church was not infant baptism, but it was adult baptism. Okay? Uh, but, but you say, well, wh- what about what about kids and, you know, did they have kids baptized? Yeah, they, they did, and they, they, uh, they, they justified that by that little word, as I referred to a bit earlier, it was the word oikos. In the book of Acts, persons are baptized and their household. So we have to make an assumption in their household or was who? Uh, kids, servants, um, all kinds of people, relatives. Huh? So the key thing in the early church was to typically convert the head of the house. Because when you converted the head of the house, everybody else came along. Okay. Um, lastly, I just said, uh, characteristics of the early church were holidays. Uh, there were no buildings in the early church. Uh, there, there, there were homes, typically, of, of wealthy people that hosted the Sabbath Sunday gatherings. Uh, sometimes we think of the early church as being poverty-ridden. The, the archaeological evidence is that probably that isn't so. That the early church was composed of some very, very wealthy people. And, and for example, uh, if we read the book of Luke, uh, Luke has a patron. His name is Theophilus, which translates friend of God. And Theophilus is obviously wealthy enough to be a patron. And he's commissioned Luke to to write this. So, um, for for sometimes... uh, Really, ch- sometimes in the church today, the wealthy get a bad rap. It, it's, it's not money that's the root of all evil, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. I, I keep thinking, what would our congregations do if, if the wealthier people who were blessed with more wealth, blessed, uh, can't do that, you see can't do that, because then you become Calvinistic. (coughs) Because Calvin's critics understood money as being the evidence of God's blessing. There's a whole thesis written on that called the Vader Thesis. It's why Calvinism thrived uh, in capitalism. uh, But but think of a congregation, uh, if we did not have people more generous and understood stewardship as, as the support of a congregation. Yeah. Well, that's where I think I want to end today. know, uh, Again, okay? That's a lot of stuff. That, uh, yeah, that's a lot of stuff. Oh. Yeah.